In the world of heavy industry, there's hardly anything more expensive than unpredicted maintenance. If you have a boat in the middle of the ocean carrying millions and millions of dollars worth of cargo and you have an engine problem in the middle of the ocean, you have a large expense on your hands. If you run trains and you have a train break down in the middle of Siberia somewhere and you have eight other trains routed through that same line on that same day but you have one that now can't move, you have a big problem on your hands. So needless to say, this is a curious area for applying artificial intelligence in terms of being able to figure out when a machine is going to break down, hopefully, before it ever does. What are the common patterns in vibration, in temperature, in various sensor information from engines or from other moving parts that might tell us which machines need to get back to the shop and get repaired, or which are least likely to break down if we have to have a route that absolutely must get there. This week we speak with Will McGinnis, who's chief scientist at a company called Predicto, which is a predictive maintenance company based here in the greater Atlanta area. Will speaks with us about the applications for predictive maintenance, specifically in the domain of trains, which is where Predicto primarily focuses now, but with concepts that would apply elsewhere. How can you find constant patterns in order to know when a train is going to break down if you have different models of trains? Entirely different engines, entirely different chassis, different number of wheels, whatever the case may be, how can we still coax forth patterns that are going to help us make better business decisions than if we weren't using predictive maintenance? The world of sensor data in the real world is tough. You know, as I speak with Will here, I'm reminded that, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, in some respect, have it easy in that all of their interactions with their customers are really happening with a well-instrumented digital universe where every click, every mouse scroll is easily tracked. In the world of trains, if you have engines that are going through cold areas and hot areas and you have sensors that have to be operating on this old machinery built decades ago, you have a lot harder time coaxing out that sensor data in real time as you would in a digital universe. So how can we do something similar to what the big guys in the digital space do with these big expensive machines to make sure that they don't break down. And Will sheds a lot of light on that exact topic with examples that I think transfer to almost anything in heavy machinery. So I hope this will open a lot of eyes in the world of predictive maintenance for absolutely anybody whose business relies on big equipment in some way, shape, or form. So without further ado, this is Will McGinnis with Predicto here on AI and Industry. So William, we'll start off with what's possible now in sort of this predictive maintenance world. I'm seeing a lot of kind of the big players trying to get into this space, seemingly having trouble. You folks are working on trains, you're working on airplanes. As of today, you know, if the technology froze and didn't improve, which obviously isn't happening, but if that was the case, what can we do with predictive maintenance and big equipment of that sort? Yeah, so I'll say the the market in general for this kind of product, I think, is split into two main buckets. There's the companies that have basically all of their things in one place. So think a factory, right? You've got a maintenance group yeah, that's yeah, there 24-7. Yeah. They're in the building. Things are breaking nearby. And got there's it. a set of solutions that targets that area. A lot of like little devices that you'll stick onto a machine and Bluetooth sends data off, that kind of thing. We don't play so much in that. We're really focused on big, heavy distributed assets. So think trains, planes, shipping, things like that. And it's a really different kind of dynamic in terms of what's possible because there's not a wire connecting data to anything, yeah. right? So if you're a locomotive, maybe you're sending data 
back to home over cell networks. Right? So the data that you're getting is often much more limited. You're not going to get really, really dense vibration data where you can do cool stuff like frequency domain analysis or something like that, which is a you know a very mature field. You're maybe getting sensor readings every minute or every now and then yeah, right? and yeah, consistently. Yeah. So it's a more challenging space, but the impact of maintenance problems on the distributed assets is you know also much higher. So at this point in distributed assets in particular, I think we're far enough along where you can augment the maintenance workforce really, really well, right? So if, if you have some asset that's in a shop and it's you know there for some federally mandated 30-day maintenance or something like that, you can do a really, really good job of figuring out what else do I need to do while it's here to make sure it doesn't come back for unplanned maintenance, right? Like there are certain times when I know I have access to this device and it's cheap to do maintenance, and I want to do everything in that. Yep. Because the reality is still half or more of all maintenance is unplanned, and it's 10 times more expensive, right? You know, a lot of industries have network effects where if, if you have a locomotive that's broken down on the rail, the whole network's backed up. Yep. Or if, if a plane's on the ground, it screws up the flight yep. schedule for the whole day. So, I mean, in these industries, the, the challenge right now is data access and the volume and richness of that data. But I think especially in the past maybe three to five years, it's improved enough to get to where you can get a whole lot of value out of what's there now. Got it. So you can actually draw something from it. It's not just like, well, you know, right. this sensor information is somewhat worthless for me, you know, knowing what to do maintenance-wise. But now it's sort of like, oh, we can inform decisions. So you folks are, are selling to real companies and organizations in this space and trains, for example, we could start there. You know, just to paint a mental picture for the audience, because I think predictive maintenance and, and sort of heavy equipment of this kind is going to be a little bit of a newer world to sort of envision in their mind. And what I like to do with the podcast is make it so that executives on their drive can sort of see what we're talking about without seeing it so much that they miss the road. So everybody tuned in, uh, make sure you keep your eyes forward. But in terms of imagining what this looks like, let's say a train pulls in for whatever sort of our normal maintenance time is, what is possible now, given the sort of state of predictive maintenance tech and sort of the technologies you guys work on, as opposed to sort of what folks would have done in the past. Yeah, so in the past, a lot of times, maintenance organizations will have an incentive to turn things around quickly, really. Like their main thing is, I, I got a device in for whatever type of maintenance, and they're revenue producing in these industries. So they're, the thing that they really, really care about is get out and keep producing revenue, right? And it's an organizational challenge for many, many years, and it's pretty ingrained. And now that we're starting to get data off of these devices and use it more smartly, you can you can start to try to change that into, you know, instead of getting back out there and producing revenue right now, you know, how do I, over the long term, right, yeah, use it yeah, yeah. more heavily, right? So over the next year, how do I make sure it's, you know, 98% available, yeah, not, not, not 97? Not usage today, but usage over the lifetime right. of this asset. So, like, what's this going to matter for the company this year, yeah. not... The rest is 24 hours. Right. So what does that involve? In other words, like imagination would tell me, okay, we have sensors in a train on wheels and engine mm -hmm. and whatever else. Maybe this particular pattern of vibration and heat in this area doesn't necessarily, but often leads to X. And, and that means someone should check on these back parts and take a look at these axles, maybe replace some of these nuts and bolts or at least go look at them because this area has, you know, 80% likelihood of having something get messed up in the next month or right. so. Is that 
to some degree what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So it's really a mixture for us of sensor data, operational data. So how do we expect something to perform in the next few weeks? Is it going to go on a route to Germany or is it mostly just going to be hanging around the yard? Weather data, maintenance data is critical. So if some major maintenance yesterday and broke today, maybe there's something wrong with the way that maintenance is being done. The action that's taken given a warning. So if we say, you know, your engine's going to explode in 30 seconds, <laughs> nothing you can do. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. save anybody money. It has no use, right? Even if you're 100% accurate. The action's really important to us. So we've got cases where it's, you know, we're predicting failures in a kind of software communication sort of system on a locomotive. And in that case, it's as simple as basically restarting it, right? But it takes a few hours to you know, fully turn off and turn back on. So you want to do that in a location of your choosing. Yeah, um, yeah, not in the, not, the middle, the middle right. of Siberia somewhere on a rail. Right, you know, and then there's other cases where it's, you know, a $100,000 part that they have to you know, take out and replace, and it takes days, and it's a little bit of a different dynamic. So this is very useful. You'd brought up something that I think top of mind wouldn't have entered my head, but makes a lot of sense. You mentioned, okay, we have sensor data, but we also have operational data. We have weather data. What else is getting factored into these kinds of models? What kinds of information needs to be included in order to have a, a genuine insight as to what we want to look at, what we want to fix, what we want to do now to make the most of, of this piece of equipment. Are those kind of our main three or are there other domains of information? I mean, those are the most common for sure, cool. I mean, especially with distributed assets. Weather tends to be a lot more important than maybe you would think. Oh, yeah. In aerospace, even things like particulate or pollution data. Huh. Oh, okay. Go figure. Has some effect, but maintenance is... I mean, critical in this space, planning data, if it's somewhat reliable, which it sounds like when you're in the field, it's not. When you said operational data, you use the example of knowing that this train's going to be in the yard versus this train's going to be hitting the road for the next week. What else is kind of included under this category? So when people think in operational data for a big piece of equipment, is this just where it's going to be, what it's going to be doing, or what does that imply? Again? Yeah, so think use case for locomotive again. If the plan for it this coming week, and we're making a prediction maybe for the next few days, is to take a huge load of coal through the mountains or something. That may imply some different stress on the braking systems and motor and things like that. Then if it's going to do like a little commuter route through some town and it's a passenger train or something like that. So having some idea of the load it's going to be under helps. Cool. Okay. And, and just to understand this, Given where the technology is today, and we are definitely going to talk about the future, I'm interested in where this is going. These are very hard problems, and I know even solving a few of them is worth a lot of money for these large organizations. Given where we are today, is it possible to take a look at a given sort of pattern of sensor data, weather data, whatever else, and be able to say, okay, well, given this pattern, if you're doing a, a light trek over the course of the next week or whatnot, we may not have to look into this stuff. This is hardly ever a pattern that really matters when we're doing pitter-patter stuff on the rails. But that exact same pattern, if we know that this train is going to be, again, going through the mountain with a huge payload of coal, this has a small chance of being something. But if we're going all the way out there, well, then, you know, by golly, let's look into it now rather than later. So is that something that can be coaxed out at present, given where the technology is? My guess would be that that operational data that's probably not coming in in as smooth and nice a uniform way as <laughs> yeah. the sensor data, right? That's yeah. that's like some dude in like a train yard being like, yeah, we'll be using this one to go, you know, through the mountains next yeah. week or we'll be using this one to go to that. Like I, I can imagine that being sloppy, right? My guess, you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that 
train routing is not the cleanest, smoothest, most uniform software world that makes your life easy. No, certainly not. <laughs> okay. Yeah that, that, yeah, that was a guess, and, and thank goodness it was right. But that's tough because to factor that in to this nice, smooth sensor data, cool, we can yank that up to the cloud and make decisions. But that other data, it's almost like, man, someone has to get on the phone with the guy in the yard and kind of have a conversation. How do we square that circle? The reality is it's kind of a fact of, of the industry right now. Even the sensor data is not always as nice as one might hope partially just because of the size and scale of this industry and partially oh, yeah. just because of the dynamic of these things being out in the middle of nowhere. And yep. a lot of the you're sensors the cold, are retrofitted. You're, you're in the, yeah. You know. So, I mean, it's part of the reality. Maybe the same thing from a different direction that's kind of interesting is, sure. you know, if you don't have reliable planning, a lot of these things can inform planning in a nice way. So we've got a case, it's that, that three-hour restart case where so freight train generally has three locomotives. There's one in front that one in front has some initialization process for communication systems that it has to go through. And if it fails, you have to restart it. It takes three hours. So it, it's a software system and it takes three hours? I don't know if you're about positive train control. The, I am totally not, dude. I work, <laughs> I work on the interwebs, bro. Oh. Positive train control. Not, not that so, familiar. It's a large federally mandated thing that's in the process of rolling out. It'll be done okay, in cool. a couple of years. And the so, idea is basically you have communications and sensor systems on the track and all over the place. You can keep locomotives running into each other. Cool. All right. right. Awesome. Sounds, sounds like a good safety yeah. protocol. Good thing for everyone. But sometimes if you can't communicate with some system, you have to restart it. You lose a few hours. If you're a planner and you've got a good idea of how likely that failure is to happen on your, let's say you've got 500 locomotives in your yard, you're going to send out 150 trains today. So you're going to have 50 in front, 100 not in front, 50 stay home. So you can say, what are my 50 that are least likely to have this failure? Those go in front and on and on and on. And you can plan more efficiently. Ah, okay, okay. So based on the sensor history recent mm -hmm. of these different trains, who are going to be our prime you know, trains that really should be leading the pack and have the least likelihood of having this silly you know, half a damn day software right. restart process? And we can say, okay, well, based on these patterns and sort of the recent use of all these different units, we would imagine that out of all the 500 trains, you know, here's going to be our 50 or 150 or whatever it is that are positively least likely to, you know, have this concern. Okay, cool. And that obviously, I mean, you know, like you said, if you have a bunch of trains sitting on a track for three hours, having to do a reset, that network effect of bogging everything else down, that's a lot of money lost. So it's a lot of opportunity to, to streamline operations. So that's very useful. Last quick thing I'll touch on in terms of the how before we talk a bit about the future, which I'm, I'm very interested in your opinion on. We talked a little bit off microphone about how in this world, if you're in the checkout page in Amazon, whether you're buying you know, a tactical folding knife or you're buying a book about you know the first emperor of China, your page will sort of work the same. You have like a buy button. There's going to be some upsells. You're going to have a menu. And whatever you click, the sensors don't break. It's the internet. Everything's a sensor and they know where your mouse is. And the world is lovely in that sense. In this space, things are very different. We got a train built in 1980, whatever. We've got a train built two years ago. We've got different size of wheels. We've got different kinds of engines. We've got sensors that are old, sensors that are new, sensors that are kind of... Frankenstein fitted and sensors that are built for that machine to be able to get patterns off of train X and translate them to train Y when one has a bunch of crazy retrofitted sensors and the thing was built before you and I were born mm -hmm. and the other 
you know, was built yesterday with a totally different engine and whatnot. That seems like a really pivotal problem. I know it's one that you guys sort of have as kind of part of your core value prop. It sounds like there's enough similarities across trains, or do we have to really also find patterns within train models? How does that work? So it's a mix, you know. So if you look at, you know, ignoring sensors for a moment, weather data, operational data, maintenance data, of course, that's the same across the fleet. That's nice. Okay. Right. To begin with, you have some nice commonalities. Oftentimes, you can find a good set of sensors, which are also similar across the whole fleet, which is great. Another good start. Beyond that, you know, most of these operators, so think of CSX, Norfolk Southern, something like that, they'll have a mixed fleet, for sure, of different vendors. So be some Siemens locomotives, maybe some from GE. And even within that, they'd have a few different models, right? So maybe 50 of this, 80 of this. Between the shared things, between maintenance and common sensors, you can learn some really interesting things just from that. And then beyond that, you have to just kind of segment it out and say, you know, you have 80 of this type of locomotive, and it's the only type of locomotive that you have that has sensor foo. But we know that it's important when that goes over 80 that this thing's going to blow up. So our, our core technology underneath our end user application is in trying to find those things that are the same that we can model and use the whole fleet to find interesting things, maybe just for these subsections of the fleet and capitalize on them as best we can. Cool. And I imagine some of these patterns are sort of coaxed out via the system itself. And mm-hmm. maybe some of it, you have a good sense. There's, you know, totally common sense. Look, if it's this cold and we have these kinds of things and these yep. sensors, let's not count on machine learning, picking up the pattern. Let, right. Let's just like not let that happen. Mm-hmm. But then there's probably other times where it's like, huh, those two things happening together almost always end up leading to this. That's interesting. And that's how kind of AI maybe can go a bit beyond the intuition that otherwise would have been used in these situations. Yeah. So it's interesting. It may lead into the the future thing a yeah, little yeah. bit. Or, or, you know, as a technology person, my tendency is to be really rah-rah for machine learning. And, you know, our core offering is just that. And we do really great at it. But every time we go into one of these big industrial customers, there's always some guy that's about to retire that's been doing this for 30 years and working on these devices. And they know, they yeah. know like two or three things that are just nuggets of wisdom that, yep. you know, you'd be naive not to capitalize on it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Because especially in this space too, right? It's yeah. like not everything is orchestrated in some digital environment. Again, like Amazon checkout. The system is probably drunk. I mean, every mouse movement and click and those patterns exist more wholly in a digital space than in a physical space. In your world, it is totally the opposite. These are big equipment working in the real world. And some guy has had his eyes and his ears on these things for decades. Like tune in. That makes a lot of sense. Subject matter experts. You know, if we do shift into the future, it seems reasonably clear. Like you said, there's a lot of challenges here. Retrofitted sensors, kind of problems with data you know, issues with streaming this data, maybe not being as quick as in some other spaces, because we have a lot of inherent challenges, big old equipment, we're trying to, you can remake a landing page in two seconds with no cost, you're not going to tear down a giant shipping boat, uh, (laughs) just because you came up with a new design last night, right? right? right. So one of the many benefits of the digital world, but you know, we still have to exist in the world of atoms for now. And so we have to bear the pains that go along with it. And and you folks are are obviously aiming to help companies do that. When you think about your technologies, what you guys work on, obviously, is not as much the factories distributed. So we'll talk about the trains, the big boats, the airplanes, the the worlds where you function. When you think five years ahead, what are the sub-segments of those industries that you think are most likely to basically kind of have to adapt this technology? So I'll say there's a problem in these industries that I think is scares everyone a little bit 
Hmm. But what's that? There's a huge age gap in maintenance and in a lot of physical engineering fields, reliability engineering, quality, things like that, where you've got a ton of people that are near retirement, great at their jobs, they know a ton, there's the people we're trying to get info from when we can, and there's a younger generation that's you know reasonably large, but there's like a 20-year gap in the middle where really like dot-com era, a lot of people just doing software. Yeah, all these thin-wristed right? Twitter, you know, whatchamacallits yeah. that aren't out there turning wrenches, yeah. So, you know, in the next five years, and it's starting to happen now, these kind of old sages that, that know how everything works are starting to retire. And, you know, if you've got 74 ports all around the world and they speak a different language at every one, how do you keep institutional knowledge? How do you pass that on to this 20 years younger generation, right? So I think we're hitting a point where that's kind of just intractable. And so systems like this, where you're saying, we're going to use data and machine learning to store that. And we're going to use nice user applications to transfer that knowledge onto younger generations so we can you know, augment them and help them operate as if they were mm. the old sages. And I think that's going to be the biggest transformational shift. And I don't know that it has a specific subset of the industry. It's really, it's a problem in factories. It's a problem in distributed assets. The Zen of train maintenance. Huh? Yeah. Very interesting. So you're talking about a cultural dynamic that in some sense may up the urgency and the requirement for these things. Mm -hmm. Obviously you guys are working on selling this stuff. You have to sell this stuff to feed yourself. And when you guys think about what's going to get us in the door, it seems like part of the urgency factor, part of what might drive adoption is not necessarily, okay, this new sensor came out, but we've got less young folks moving into this space. We have to still know how these things work. We've got to identify the patterns, come up with the protocols, know how to fix things and bake that into a system so that we can still run without all these 62-year-old guys that are about to leave. Right. Okay. Interesting. So now, do you see this as more just in closing? Do you see the train world, the plane world, the boat world, and any one of those, or, or a subsector, maybe a certain kind of freight or a certain kind of planes or whatnot, being more likely to have a higher urgency for the adoption of predictive analytics or predictive maintenance in some sense than other spaces? Anybody who's going to have a little bit more fire under their feet, in your opinion, in the near future than anyone else, or is it kind um, of up for grabs? I would say, if any, maybe rail. They've got a an extra complication in their dynamic and that you can't really build more rail where you're going to buy the land from, right? You can build little sections, mm. but it's kind of just there. It's not 1880 anymore. Right? Yeah. We've got a lot of sky, we've got a lot of ocean, but they, <laughs> between that and they're largely built up by acquisitions, they've got some union complexities. They've got a lot on their plate. Yeah. Industry. Okay. And, and it sounds like that's where you guys have a lot of knuckle down focus anyway. Mm -hmm. So that may just simply be from your own perspective being right. deep in that field, but it's interesting to coax out sort of the, the challenges that those folks might have. I think the interesting takeaway here in the world of heavy industry, particularly moving heavy industry, is that part of the adoption may, you know, not just be, you know, hey, this will help us, you know, move things faster. Let's work on efficiency. But geez, we're about to, in the next seven years, we're going to lose whatever percent of our best guys, we might as well make sure that that's in the system. So that seems like a critical, critical point ahead. Nice. Yep. Yeah, Excellent. So. Well, that's all we have for time. Will, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Yeah. Thank you.
that's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.